We're going to be looking at Jude, verse 20 tonight. Jude, verse 20. There's only one chapter in Jude. Uh, And so, Jude, verse 20 will be our text in the evenings. As many of you know, we've been looking at what the Bible says about prayer. Looked at a number of passages already, learned a number of important things that I hope have been a blessing to those who've been here, to those who've heard. Tonight, we simply continue our study on prayer. And what we learn this evening is that true prayer, biblical prayer, Christ-exalting prayer, powerful and effective prayer, is prayer in the Holy Spirit. See this a couple places in Scripture. One of them is here in Jude verse 20. I'll read it for you now. This is what God's Word says, Jude verse 20, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Before we work through God's Word together, let's pray together. Lord God, we read, we read about this thing called praying in the Holy Spirit, and although on the one hand it's simple and it makes sense, Lord, on the other hand it's, it's profound, and Lord, we want to understand it better. And indeed, we want to be people who experience it in our own lives. We want to be people who who know and who experience praying in the Holy Spirit. We ask that through our study of Your Word tonight, you You would help this happen. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? I mean, in one sense, as I said in my prayer, it means just that. We must pray in the Holy Spirit. It's simple. Yet as simple as it is, I think all of us would agree that it's a concept and maybe even an experience that we often find elusive. To help us understand it tonight, I want us to think first about what it isn't, second about what it is. And third, about how we might do it, okay? What praying in the Spirit isn't, what praying in the Spirit is, and how we might do it. So first, what praying in the Spirit isn't? To understand what praying in the Spirit isn't, we ought first understand what Scripture sets before us as the, as the antithesis to the Spirit, the, the opposite of the Spirit. What is the opposite of the Spirit in the Bible? It's the flesh, right? The spirit in the flesh. Galatians 5.16 says, but, but I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So throughout Scripture, the flesh is set in opposition to the Spirit. When we walk by the Spirit or when we live by the Spirit, we are ultimately walking or living by the power of God within. When we walk by the flesh or live by the flesh, we are walking or living by our own sinful power and resources. The NIV doesn't translate the Greek word as flesh in those passages I read. It translates them as sinful nature. That's ultimately what the flesh is. It's it's our sinful nature. 
The flesh is a, is a synonym, really, for the carnal, sinful, self-sufficient lives that each and every one of us lives apart from the Holy Spirit. And so to understand what praying in the Spirit isn't, let's think about what praying in the flesh is. According to one definition, prayer in the power of the flesh is prayer that relies upon human ability and effort to carry the prayer forward. Prayer in the power of the flesh is prayer that relies on human ability and effort to carry the prayer forward. If we look at Scripture, I think we can see some specific examples of what praying in the flesh looks like in practice. We learn in Matthew 6, 5 through 7, for instance, that that the prayer of the flesh is more concerned with being seen by men in public than, than communing with God in private. Prayer in the flesh is prayer that that is ultimately concerned with what others think. This is what we read in that passage. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Prayer in the flesh is is prayer that is more concerned with being seen by men and more concerned with the opinions of men than it is with communing with God. Sometimes uh, sometimes I bow my head before my meal uh, in a restaurant. I do it at home, but sometimes I do it in a restaurant. and, And there's this weird dynamic going on when I do that because on the one hand, uh, especially at Duane's, I'm expected to pray before I eat. Because I am the pastor of the church down the road. And I think, if someone does not see the pastor pray, what are they going to think of me? Yet on the other hand, what about those who have no idea who I am? Will they think if I bow my head to pray before my meal in this restaurant that I'm some, that I'm some radical fundamentalist? I don't want that. So it's, just, it's this weird dynamic that is, that is going on in my mind. But, but either way, all I can think about when I pray in a restaurant is what others around me are thinking right now. That's prayer offered in the flesh. Prayer that is more concerned with what others are thinking and with being seen by others than communing with God. We learn in Matthew 6, verses 7 through 9, that the prayer of the flesh is a prayer that is, that is more concerned with saying the right words than resting on God's fatherly goodness. This is what we read there, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. How often in prayer don't we focus just on on how well we can pray? Some of us us just strive, and I find this, I I, I run into this in my own life, I I strive to have these perfectly composed, doctrinally sound prayers that rely on the right cadence or emotion. 
And you know, I feel like I have to list off, you know, X number of God's communicable attributes and X more amount of God's incommunicable attributes. And, and if I've praised each person of the Trinity for the part they've played in creation and redemption before casting my cares upon the Lord, then that's a, that's a prayer I'm satisfied with, right? A prayer that is just is preoccupied with this, this theological accuracy. And then, of course, when words fail us, when we're tongue-tied, we become dissatisfied. Or maybe sometimes we focus on how many words we can use in prayer or, or how long we spent in prayer, and we think, you know, if I can just spend X minutes in prayer, then, then that's good, and if I can't spend that much, then I'm a miserable failure in prayer. All of that is praying in the flesh. It's prayer that relies on human ability or effort. Sometimes, Henry, I think you and I have talked about this before, sometimes in prayer you just you try to work yourself up to this deep level of concentration, right? Like you're, you're trying to use the force to connect with God, and you, you end up coming out of it with a headache, that's prayer according to the flesh. Prayer put forth and relying on human ability and effort. When we look, look at Luke 18, we could say that the prayer of the flesh is prayer that is offered in self-righteousness rather than in humility. I think I've been in this passage almost every week in our study of prayer, but this is what we read, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and who look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. No, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. And then we're told the tax collector over here, he, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this. He says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector that is, this man, he's the one who went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But, but, but it's the man who came humbly whose prayer was heard. And I might ask, how, how do you come to God in prayer? We've talked about this too. Are you coming in your name? Are you hoping that God will hear you because of who you are and what you've done? Or are you coming humbly as a sinner through the precious blood of Jesus? The prayer of the flesh comes in self-righteousness rather than in humility. Lastly, the prayer of the flesh is, is prayer concerned with our will rather than with God's will. Romans 8, 5 says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. How often don't we come to God in prayer, like He's just the great, you know, Santa Claus in the sky. We just rattle off all the things that we want. How often aren't our prayers consumed by our wills and completely devoid of any thought of God's will? That's prayer in the flesh. That's prayer that is entirely dependent on human ability and wisdom. 
So that's what praying in the Spirit isn't. It isn't, it isn't praying in the flesh. It's not, it's not praying uh, in a way that relies on our own ability and our own wisdom. What is praying in the Spirit? Well, it's the opposite. It's, it's praying by the Spirit's power, not by our own power. Matthew Henry says that, that praying in the Holy Spirit means praying under His guidance and influence according to the rule of His Word, with faith, fervency, and constant persevering importunity. Reuben Torrey says that, that this prayer is the prayer that the Holy Spirit inspires and directs. Jason Meyer, writing for Desiring God, says, Praying in the Spirit means that the Spirit empowers the prayer and carries it to the Father in the name of Jesus. And what's the, what, what are the characteristics of prayer in the Spirit? What, what, what experience might you have when you are praying in the Spirit? Maybe that's the question I, I want to ask. Well, one, one would, be, would be freedom. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So when you're praying in the Spirit, going, you might experience some, some level of freedom in the prayer. Another characteristic is joy. Acts 13.52 says, And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is joy. Sorrow for sin will be experienced when we pray in the Spirit. In John 16.8, we read that when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regards to sin. If your, if your soul, soul excuse me, groans under the weight of your sin in prayer as you, as you confess it, right? that's, that's a sign of, of prayer in the Spirit. Ultimately, I would say that, that the defining characteristic of prayer in the Spirit is, is life. Romans 8.6 says, The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. John 6, verse 63 says, the Spirit gives life. In light of these verses, I would say that that prayer in the Holy Spirit is going to have a living quality to it. It's going to have a warmth and a vitality to it that is not the case otherwise. And I'm guessing this is one of those, those things that sort of makes sense when we experience it. I know in my own prayer life, and hopefully in yours as well, there are, there are times in prayer when I, when I have truly experienced this warmth and this vitality and this life. There were times when it just felt that my mind was illuminated and my, my heart was moved and my tongue was loosened to pour out praises and petitions to God. And without a doubt, these are some of the sweetest experiences in prayer I've ever had. What's going on there? Well, it's, 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 it's prayer that's enlivened by and empowered by and influenced by the Holy Spirit, in my estimation. That's how I understand it. One pastor gives the analogy of, of riding a bike uphill and downhill. He says when we pray in the flesh, prayer can be likened to riding a bike uphill. It's hard. It's difficult. It's laborious. 
When we pray in the Spirit, it's like riding a bike downhill. He goes on to remind us that on any bike ride, there are degrees of, of, of decline. Some hills are steeper than others. In prayer, it's the same way. But this pastor says that the, the basic awareness of a downhill energy and momentum are present in all the different degrees of a downward slope. And when we, when we pray in the Spirit, we experience, I think, a similar phenomenon. It's as if we're, we're being carried or driven or propelled to God by the Holy Spirit and pouring our hearts out to Him in praise and confession and thanksgiving and supplication and even in lament. It's just easy. This doesn't mean it should feel like inner revival every time we play in the, pray in the Spirit. It doesn't mean that we still won't cry out in prayer, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It just means that ultimately there's this, there's this momentum toward God, a push towards God that isn't otherwise the case. Lastly tonight, how to pray in the Spirit. How to pray in the Spirit. First, to pray in the Spirit, we must recognize our need for the Spirit in prayer. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, Paul says this, We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with words that groans, excuse me, with groans that words cannot express. Right there, Paul makes it clear that, that we, we need the Spirit's help in prayer. We we do not know what we ought to pray for. And so to pray in the Spirit, we must first recognize our need for the Spirit. We, we are people who like to try and do things ourselves, aren't we? This is true spiritually as well. When the tempter comes, we try and fend him off in our own strength. When it comes to growing in holiness, we try to advance in our own strength. When it comes to prayer, so often we rely on ourselves to say just the right words or, or to muster just the right level of concentration. Whenever we rely on ourselves in the spiritual life, we end up spiritually shipwrecked. At least that's my own experience. We can't do any of it. We need the Spirit for all of it. We need the Spirit for prayer too. To pray in the Spirit, we must recognize our need for the Spirit in prayer. Secondly, we must ask for the Spirit. Recognizing the Spirit should lead to asking for the Spirit. Luke eleven thirteen. sometimes Jesus makes this almost too easy for us. We make it hard. He says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? God gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. And so upon recognizing our need for the Holy Spirit, we must ask for the Holy Spirit. Reuben Torrey says that, says that this is especially so when we do not feel like praying. He says, often when, it comes, when we come to God in prayer, we, we don't feel like praying. What should we do in such a situation? Should we stop praying until we feel like it? Not at all. Instead, we should wait quietly for God and tell Him how cold and prayerless our hearts are. We should look up to Him and trust Him and expect the Holy Spirit to draw our hearts out in prayer. 
Not long ago, I put this into practice. I worked through this beforehand, and um, uh, I was spending time in prayer in my office, as I often do in the mornings, and you know, I, I didn't feel like praying <laughs> at all. Uh, and I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, my heart is cold, and my heart is prayerless. And I just, I sat quietly, and 15, 20 minutes later, I was still there, and the Lord truly drew drew my heart out in prayer. As I confessed my prayerlessness, as I confessed the coldness of my heart, as I confessed my need for the Spirit, the Lord drew my heart out in prayer. I trust you'll experience the same thing. Third, to pray in the Spirit, we must obey God. In Acts 5.32, we read, We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. The Puritan William Gurnall wrote this, Sin is so offensive to the Holy Spirit that wherever it is bid welcome, He will show His distaste. If you would have the Spirit of God breathe into your soul at prayer, present it not to Him besmeared, old Puritan word, by any sin unrepented of. If you would expect the Holy Spirit to breathe into your soul at prayer, don't come to Him with unconfessed sin in your life. Don't be walking in unrepentance. Don't be carrying on in sin. If we're walking in sin, carrying on in sin, We shouldn't expect ourselves to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Jesus called Him the Spirit of truth. He will not dwell and tolerate in the midst of falsehood. Fourth, to pray in the Spirit, we must have in mind the things of the Spirit. Romans 8, 5, again, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. How do we know what the Spirit desires? It's all right here. It's all right here. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Scriptures. Peter tells us that in the Scriptures, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These are the Holy Spirit's words. You want to be spiritual? Be biblical. You want to have in mind the things of the Spirit? Have a mind that is shaped and formed by the Word of God. Fifth and finally, to pray in the Spirit, we must keep ourselves from quenching the Spirit. There are a number of ways we quench the Spirit. In fact, if we do, if we do the opposite of everything I just mentioned, that'd be a good way to quench the Spirit, right? If we, if we wouldn't have in mind the things of the Spirit, that'd be a good way to quench the Spirit. If we wouldn't realize our need for the Spirit, that'd be a good way to quench the Spirit. If we continue in sin, we'll quench the Spirit. Right? There are a number of ways we could do this. We could put them all under that category. But when it comes specifically to this matter of prayer, the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones suggested that one of the significant ways we quench the Spirit is by not obeying the Spirit's impulse to pray. Sometimes... Sometimes we feel the impulse to pray, don't we? Perhaps in my line of work, it makes me a little more susceptible to this impulse, but sometimes I'll be talking to someone, they'll be in my office, they'll be telling me about something going on in their lives, and I'll feel the impulse. 
to pray for them. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Dirk, they expect you to pray for them, and there probably is some truth to that, but I feel the impulse as well, thank the Lord. Lloyd-Jones says, when you feel the impulse to pray, pray. For not to do so in that moment is to resist the Spirit and to quench the Spirit. Writing for Desiring God, Jason Meyer tells this story. Once I was driving home from working at UPS. I worked the night shift during my doctoral days and never seemed to get enough sleep. I was driving home very early one morning around 4.30 and falling asleep at the wheel. I tried everything to stay awake. I turned up the radio. I tried to sing along. I even slapped myself. The next thing I knew, I woke up in my driveway. I was more than a little shaken. I didn't know how I got there. I walked inside the house, now eerily wide awake. And as I walked into our bedroom, I noticed the strangest thing. My wife was wide awake too. She would normally be asleep, but instead she was sitting up in bed waiting for me. She said, hi, honey, how was your drive? I said, it's funny you should ask. I really struggled to stay awake on the drive home. In fact, I don't know how I got here. She said, yeah, I figured. Okay, I said, please continue. Well, she said, I woke up at about 4.30 very suddenly and felt this intense prompting to pray. I figured you must be struggling on the road since that is the time you normally come home. So I prayed for you. He then concludes with these words, I think I'm still alive and typing these words because my wife did not quench the spirit in that moment. She obeyed the Spirit's prompting to pray. I hope this story gives you a greater sense of what is at stake in prayer. Our tendency to quench the Spirit is not a small and inconsequential problem. Let us give ourselves to the reality of praying in the Spirit and renounce the temptation to try and pray in our own strength. End quote. Dear friends, I leave you with that. Let us us give ourselves to the reality of praying in the Spirit and renounce the temptation to try and pray in our own strength. Let's pray together. Our great and awesome God, we want to be people who know by experience what it means to pray in the Spirit. Lord, we know that this is not something for super spiritual Christians. This is not something for people who have, who have attained some level of spirituality. This is not something for, for Pentecostals and Charismatics. This is, this is something you set before us in your Word that is to be the experience of the believer in Jesus Christ. Lord God, help us to be people who pray in the Spirit and whose prayers are, are directed by and motivated by the Spirit. Help us to be people who are carried unto You by the Spirit and who feel that downward momentum even in our prayers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand for the parting blessing and then we'll sing our closing song together. Dear friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you.
May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He turn His face toward you. Grant you His peace. Amen. We're going to close with number 262 in the blue book. That is holy, holy, holy. I think we'll just sing the first and the last verse, Carlene. 262, the first and the last verse.